0: This is American Resistance, a mini series highlighting the people and stories from David Rothkopf's latest book, American Resistance: The Inside Story of How the Deep State Saved the Nation. Hello and welcome to another special edition of our podcast mini series called American Resistance based on My recent book of that title, in which we talked to some of the core people who are involved, not just in the preparation of the book, but who have stood out as as leading examples of the kind of public service we're talking about here. We're very fortunate to have today joining us Fiona Hill, well known to all of you, both from her appearances on television during the impeachment hearings, subsequent to that, and uh, her book. There is nothing for you here, finding opportunity in the 21st century. Fiona is senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution. She recently served as deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian affairs on the NSC from 2017 to 2019, from 2006 to 2009. She served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. Hi, Fiona.
1: Hi there, David.
0: Well, I just wanted to get, you know, the, the highlights in there. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks again for talking to me during the course of the book. Let me start with one of the questions similar to how I started the last time we spoke about this. You had served in the government before, and certainly when you arrived in the Trump administration, you knew that the issues you would be dealing with were going to be sensitive ones to him, given the election and so forth. How quickly did this manifest itself?
1: Really from day one. <laughs> um, I wasn't expecting me to be quite that quick. But it was apparent from my very first day in the office, even before I'd been properly orientated, as, as they might say, that's probably not a word, is it, orientated. But anyway, gone through the full orientation process, I got called into the Oval Office along with the then national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, to do a kind of a, a quick brief for Trump because he was going to have a condolence call to Vladimir Putin after a, a bomb attack in the St. Petersburg metro. And it was apparent right away that he was just really not interested in the briefing. He wanted to get you know straight onto the phone call with Putin. And also by then, people like McMaster were walking on eggshells around him. I mean I knew that McMaster didn't really know the president very well. I mean everybody was familiar with the fact that McMaster had been selected out of a you know kind of a roster of people who had actually declined the job. He felt a real sense of duty being a uniformed military officer. This was of course after General Flynn had been pushed out because of the whole incident with the Russian ambassador uh, Kislyak over you know uh, the whole rigmarole about sanctions and you know all kinds of issues related to the uh, Russian interference in the 2016 Elections. And, you know, right away I felt this incredible tension. Of course, I didn't know the president either. I mean, people always say, well, Trump appoints X and Y. Well, we know, and you cover that in your book, that Trump didn't really have a team of anyone. He wasn't expecting to become president. This was, you know, in large part his campaign was to his campaign for himself, uh, to draw attention to himself as running for president. He thought we'd have knock on effects for his personal investments in his company. He wasn't really expecting uh, to be a president. He hadn't set up really a transition team. I mean, the, the person who was doing it for him, Governor Christie of uh, New Jersey, he was always fighting with. He didn't want to pay for it. So people had been scrambling around trying to find people to come on board. I and mean, that's how I'd come on board because people like Flynn, General Flynn, and also KT McFarland, who'd been the national deputy national security um, advisor, had either you know worked with me in some capacity before Flynn when he was at the chairman's office for the Joint Chiefs at the end of the Bush administration in the first year of uh, the Obama administration before he went to the Defense Intelligence Agency. and Katie McFarland was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She'd heard me speak a lot. She'd had me a couple of times on her Fox News program that she had when I was promoting a book that I'd written with a colleague on um, on Vladimir Putin. And so they were like, well, who do we know who does Russia? Well, Fiona Hill, <laughs> let's ask her to join. I mean, it was literally like that. And I'd worked with some of the other people that they were bringing on board when I was at the National Intelligence Council. And so all of us were near fights when it came to dealing with Trump, even though we'd obviously seen him in action. And you know, as I said, it was already, we're all walking on eggshells. We don't know this guy. And he's already proving to be everything that we'd seen in the campaign in terms of being very self-absorbed, self-involved i not really interested in the issues at hand, looking at everything from a very personal lens. Well, what was
0: the calculus for you? One of the things I deal with in the book is that a lot of people, when they were coming in, had some concerns or some apprehension. And in the case of the issues you'd be dealing with, such as the issues of Russia, you knew the stories around the campaign. You knew the whole Flynn-Kislyak phone call series scenario towards the end of the transition. And obviously, you'd seen what had happened to Flynn, and you're a very serious foreign policy scholar, and you'd done this before. Did you go duty calls, or did you go? I trust the people around me, or did you say, "Well, I trust myself enough that I can handle these challenges"? How did you do the calculus?
1: Well, for me, foremost, it was duty calls. Um, you know, I'd been following all of the. Stories about the intervention. You know, I was still in contact with quite a lot of you know colleagues from the National Intelligence Council and the IC. In general, I mean, in non-classified terms, just to be very clear, as we kind of move along here. But I'd been following all of this myself. You know, when I'd come out of my previous stint in government, I felt we didn't understand enough about Vladimir Putin, and so I'd work with my colleague Clifford Gaddy to you know write this this book about him to try to figure the guy out. And it was so obvious that he was making a play in our politics. It wasn't clear at all that. The Russian influence operation had actually physically changed votes. In fact, I doubted that it had given the complexity of the US electoral system, but certainly it had created chaos in our domestic politics. And when I got this call, I thought, well, I've got to do something. I mean, what have I been spending all of my time figuring out Vladimir Putin for if I'm just going to sit out and criticize? And I, of course, knew this was going to be very difficult, so I did consult with a lot of colleagues. And I did have approaches and people who were detailees into the National Security Council, including people that I had worked with before in the National Intelligence Council coming and asking me to consider it when they'd heard that I'd been offered the job, they wanted me to come in. So when you say trusting some of the people that I would working with, absolutely. People from across the departments and agencies in the US government, I knew these guys, I knew they were serious mission-oriented public servants who were there to basically do their jobs. And so that was also part of the calculation, but I mean it did get people saying to me, look, I'll never speak to you again if you do this, because look at who Trump is. And it wasn't so much that I thought that I could handle, you know, everything that would be thrown at me. I knew it would be really difficult. But I trusted myself in the fact that I wasn't going to get my head turned around by this. I am not a partisan person. I've never been part of a political campaign. And I was just going to focus like a laser beam on the national security aspects of this, so I thought. So in many respects, I suppose I was naive about the dirty nature. Of American politics, I'm an immigrant. I'm a naturalized citizen. It's actually twenty years an hour since I naturalized in 2002, and I was pretty starry-eyed about American democracy. And you know, I mean, I know it's not a pure democracy. You know, we have all of these different aspects. I mean, I've learned a lot in my 20 years of being a citizen, as well as the uh, um, umpteen years before that that I was here in the United States. But I really believed that the United States government and the people that I'd always encountered working there were were the best in the world. And the outside of the United States, people locked up to the U.S. government, you know, for uh, standards of public service. I did not expect that it would be getting ripped apart in this way. I mean, I, I guess I wasn't really paying attention to all of the crazy noise that was already going on in Congress and, you know, kind of uh, elsewhere in the political firmament. I wasn't on the internet, you know, I didn't have a blog. I wasn't out on Twitter. Uh, I mean, I was probably, you know, one might say somewhere outside of the fray, too far outside to be really, to be able to see what was going to happen when I got in there. People did warn me. So I was alert to it. And I realized, you know, what I should have done is a bit more Kremlinology around the White House. Because sometimes I'd meet person I knew nothing about their background. I didn't know that they'd done this crazy thing and that crazy thing, or that they'd been saying this, you know, out there, or that they had, you know, kind of all these links with these, you know, alt-right and far-right activists and this kind of vocal minority that was talking about basically taking apart the the administrative state. I mean, I'd seen the comments by Bannon and others, but I also knew people who knew Bannon, you know, from working with him in the past. And they said, look, you know, he could be quite reasonable. And I thought, "Okay, I'll give these people the benefit of the doubt initially and then, you know, see where we are. And then, of course, you know, I discovered that where we were was not in a good place.
0: Tell me about that. How did you discover it was not a good place?
1: Well, right away, again, you know, in the first few weeks there, I discovered that I'd become a target. I had a big target on my back because there were some people within the White House who were very much political appointees, who didn't like the fact that, you know, McMaster would come in as a sort of a, you know, basically a national security advisor who wasn't from the president's team. Some of them thought that they should be the national security advisor. And they were deeply suspicious, you know, of people like me you know, they didn't know where to put me politically. I mean, one of the quotes in your book describes me as, you know, a good, solid conservative. I think a lot of people had no idea whatsoever what I was, and I don't know how I would describe myself either because I'm just, a, you know, a, a, in my view, a person who just tries to cut through all the ideology and keep my focus on the facts, you know, not just as I see them, but as, you know, they kind of prove to be empirically, you know, always keep an open mind about things. I, I would just sort of describe that as a kind of middle-of-the-road a you know, person who's trying not to be partisan, trying not to be ideological and just get to the heart of things. But people would say to me, so you're from the Brookings Institution, so you must be left of this. And I said, look, oh, I, no, I have no idea why you're labeling here. I just want to get on with the job that I've come to do, which is focusing on what's happening with Russia. And also Europe was my portfolio as well. But instantaneously, I had a target on my back. And there starts to be very early on, all of this looking at my biography to try to out me as something or other so that they could kind of paint me with something. My CV was put up on the internet, you know, different points of Brookings. I'd been, you know, part of projects, but always quite out there in the open, that had worked with the Open Society Institute and George Soros is on Central Asia. The American University of Central Asia, for example, where I'd been on the board. And I was immediately depict, depicted as being a Soros mole, that I was part of some leftist conspiracy to undermine the president. And the same thing happened to McMaster, and he was accused, even though I mean he hadn't initially hired me. It was General Flynn who'd hired me, along with Katie McFarland, that he was immediately being accused of bringing in you know these leftist, subversive types. This was before we got into the deep state coup plotters, but people who were there to undermine the president and already to overturn his agenda. And 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 I you know discovered that a lot of this was being spread about by lobbyists who were worrying that I might block you know their ability to push certain issues forward, but also some of my own new colleagues at the National Security Council, people I didn't even really know, who thought that I was an obstacle to their various turf battles or their own ambitions to be the person who's in charge of all these different issues.
0: Now, having said that, you, as you say, were joined by a number of people whose goal was to fulfill their oath to do the right thing. And um, You know, those people, there were a range of people. And, you know, McMaster is a good example of a career military officer. Some of them were controversial. Bolton, who replaced him, is a controversial guy. Self-inflicted controversy often. But, you know, he's a controversial guy with whom I I personally disagree on a lot of things. But they all seem dedicated towards the idea of these are serious issues. They have to be managed in a serious way. And sometimes that means tiptoeing them around the president because he was neuralgic on some issues. Sometimes it 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 means saying no, we can't do that. In the terminology that comes up often in my book is workarounds. They develop workarounds to do their job in the context of a White House that's like you describe. Is that, in your estimation, a fair way to describe? how these issues were dealt with, and can you give an example?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, all of those people that you've noted, I mean, you've talked about McMaster and Bolton and many, many others that you, you mention also in the book, they're American patriots, you know, first and foremost. They believe in the institutions of the United States and the, the Constitution. They may have different views about emphasis. I mean, we know that um, Ambassador Bolton was very focused on some of the thinking around the Federalist uh, Society, for example, he has been very active in that. He um also has quite a bit of a focus on the um importance, the relative higher importance of the executive branch versus other branches of government. But it wasn't a fixation on the personality of the president in that context. And of course HR McMaster was a great strategic thinker, an all-American hero, honestly, and you know, one of the scholar military leaders that, you know, we've we've uh, come to be very familiar with in the US military, but very much non partisan, although, you know, clearly with a Uh, a more conservative bent in that, you know, kind of American context as well. And both of them were actually straight shooters. I mean, it's certainly the case, I didn't mean to make that as a pun, you know, for um, uh, H.R. McMaster, of course, he literally was, you know, kind of in the the, the military. But, you know, you knew where Ambassador Bolton stood. You might not, as you said, you know, agree with all of his interpretations of issues, but you knew where he stood. And he was a master of the game in terms of the interagency politics. But his uppermost focus was on preserving United States national security equities. And I mean, one of those examples which you relay in the book is really about NATO. I mean, there was a consensus, not across the entire government, because there were certain people who you know were on the same position as the president uh, about this, about President Trump, was that actually NATO was really important for the United States in terms of a force multiplier for the United States' own ability to project its military power. It wasn't the case that the United States was being nickled and dimed by NATO all the time, or that NATO was all about the United States. This was, a, I mean, a real collective security, mutual defense arrangement with real genuine allies who were actually, you know, in, in many respects, stepping up to the plate in different ways. But yes, we did have a beef with many of our NATO members that they'd made commitments and spending that they weren't fulfilling. And we did think that NATO needed to get more of a focus on its core mission. You remember it was uh, the French President Macron who talked about NATO being brain dead, but not in the sense that it was obviously, but it in its totality, but it needed to get a new perspective and so there'd always been debates about well, how you think about NATO, how you think beyond NATO, how you're thinking about the future of security. so there wasn't a desire to completely jettison all of these mechanisms for collective defense in Europe. but Trump comes in and he looks you know exactly about. He thinks about this condominium, or you know, kind of some kind of housing complex, and your, your tenants are deadbeats. You know, they're not. But this is really the way he described it. He had no conception of allies and partners because in his business it was just a cutthroat world, and you got rid of any kind of competition here. And as far as he could tell, the United States was paying for everything. That's his viewpoint, and nobody else was paying anything, which of course wasn't really the case. And so it was just one fight after another, and what this was doing was weakening the bonds of unity that we had in the transatlantic space, which now we see where the invasion of Ukraine by Russia was consequential because what Putin wanted to see was the breakup of NATO and Trump seemed to be moving in that direction. And again, I was one of you know, the many people who thought NATO did need reforming, that you know, we, we weren't fit for purpose in the 21st century, given you know, all the changing nature of threats, and we needed to have a rethink. You can't just you know, have the same institution that exists all the way through the Cold War and onwards. And there needed to be a different thinking about this, but didn't mean you were going to pull apart you know, alliance structures and relationships that actually worked. And yes, I also thought that people should be paying more uh, and it should be much more meaningful because in, in terms of contributions, because it was feeding into this perception by the Russians, that NATO was all about the United States. And it is not fair that the United States should be picking up most of the dime on a whole host of issues. And, you know, uh, we wanted to have... Our European card partners to be stepping up, but we had to constantly figure out how to deal with these issues that Trump was spotlighting, but without him blowing the entire alliance up all the time on every occasion. And and then that's what you know both McMaster and Bolton were really concerned about that every little issue that where uh, Trump would be angry with the allies could be the end of the alliance, and that this would be you know kind of a great way for you know then instability to spread across the European space, which, is, of course, is what we're seeing now.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, that, and I did do deal with it later in the book, in talking to Mark Esper, who then became the Secretary of Defense, and he was being pressured to remove troops from Germany. And his response was to deploy them forward, as opposed to bringing them back to the U.S., which ultimately proved to be somewhat prescient. But again, the seri- the workarounds continued Brad, let me ask you two more questions. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think, you know, this this whole term of work around, you know, people then say that, well, yes, they were then trying to thwart the president. But, you know, it's because of this hyper-personalization of the presidency. And this is why, you know, I and others, you know, were a little resistant, so to speak, for the American resistance, you know, idea. Because the United States has a lot of continuity in its foreign policy. I mean, our national security doesn't change every four years or every eight years. We still have the same challenges and threats and risks that we have to deal with. And if you're in the US military in particular, or you're in our you know, security establishment, you need predictability. You can't be going off half-cocked every five minutes. It's not just expensive to run a major security establishment, but it's also a real issue if you're changing your mind and it's capricious and you've got a guy who it's just you know depends on how he wakes up every morning. That is not the way to run a government. And it's certainly not the way to you know run a serious national security establishment. So Trump's whims uh, were basically putting the United States in peril. Now, again, some of, some of the things that he actually focused on were they actually the right things. And you've got in the book, you know, interviews with Jim Jeffrey, for example, Ambassador Jeffrey, who says, look, he often focused in on some of the key foreign policy issues. And he was actually asking some of the right questions, at least, you know, intuitively. But then his approach was just all over the place. It was really about whether Jim Jeffrey doesn't actually say this. But I mean, that was my observation. It was all about him. Him, Donald Trump, and how it reflected on him. Sometimes some of the decisions were made, well, I don't want that to happen on my watch. This is about him, about me. And I don't want to look weak, you know, in the eyes of the world, rather than what does this do or say about the United States? And so we were all focused on the fact we'd taken an oath to the Constitution to serve and uphold the Constitution, serve the United States, not an oath to one guy, may have got out of sorts because you know, somebody didn't give him the right condiment for his hamburger. You know, I mean, it's literally could be as capricious as that.
0: Two more questions. One has to do with, of course, the issues that led up to the impeachment. Uh, And I know you're there for part of them, not for all of them. But when it became clear that for a variety of reasons, political reasons, the president was withholding funds to uh, Ukraine, and that came up in that phone call, then had Vindman going and raising red flag about it, there was a whistleblower. Within a couple of weeks of that happening, Congress brought attention to it. The president's position changed, the funds were released, and there were, of course, impeachment hearings. And One way to look at this is that the system was working. The president is not the final authority in the United States government. There are laws he has to follow. There are checks and there are balances, and there are ways to sort of, there are guardrails, and those guardrails include people in the government who follow their oath. Do you think the system worked in that particular case? Or if not, why not?
1: Well, yes. And also, perhaps no. I mean, it was certainly worked in the fact that people adhered to the guardrails and also looked up you know, what we called the chain of command. In terms of bringing concerns up i had you know prior to all of this also uh, done the same thing and gone to talk to the uh, national security council lawyers about incidents i mean this all played out we don't have to go over it again i mean people can go back to the impeachment you know and take a look at all of that you know from the hearings and all the discussions about this there have been many people you know putting out alarm bells for you know what was actually going on here but the way that the system didn't work was the fact that there was as bill taylor Ambassador William Taylor, who described this in the book, was talking about these kind of parallel processes. that you had so many people it wasn't just that they weren't appointed or, or elected, but people didn't even know they were there or out there, who were interfering in all of uh, the, the uh, processes. You had you know Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, who was kind of running around with his own Ukraine policies that obviously had very little to do with actually what was going on in Ukraine. You had Ukrainian American business people. We now, you know, know um, about, but at the time, you know, the president would refer to Ukrainians or, you know, people he had good friends in Ukraine, nobody had any idea who he was talking about. Yeah, there was all these kind of personal connections. We know that most presidents have this as well. I mean, this has all been, you know, revealed in many other presidential settings of informal advisors, family friends, members of people's families, but we've always tried to keep them out of the politics. And here we had not just, you know, one parallel process, but multiple of all kinds of people getting access to President Trump all the kind of times of day and night, also a lot of influence from the television. I mean, I described him, you know, often as Mike TV from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He was obsessed about what happened on television. Basically, events didn't happen unless it happened on TV. This is the kind of, you know, the reality showman aspect of things. And so you were getting basically bombarded in all kinds of different ways by inputs that had nothing to do, you know, really with the the U.S. uh, national security perspective. And it wasn't just noise, it was actually having a direct impact on the course of events and on the policy. And that's, you know, many ways in which the system did not work, because there was no way of kind of keeping this out, because the guardrails in the form of the the chief of staff, you know, kind of uh, responsible officials in and around the president, you know, there was a lot of irresponsible officials in and around the president who wanted him to do whatever the heck he wanted, just like he did in his um, private business. And he couldn't separate out the business of state from everything about him and his own ways of doing things. I mean, you point that out in the book and others have pointed that out, for example, that he just wanted to run the country like he ran his own private business and didn't see what all of this other stuff was for. Didn't understand why, you know, we even had a government and what people's roles were in it. I've been in some pretty surreal, you know, discussions with some of the people that um, you know, Trump appointed, including to be ambassadors who had no idea what a national security advisor did. And they would literally say afterwards to their staff who would get relayed to me, so what is it that John Bolton does in the White House? You know, after we'd kind of go and meet with them. You know, so it was it was simply that there was a lot and this isn't across the board, by the way, because there were a lot of really competent and extraordinarily good ambassadors, not just those that were appointed by the State Department's career diplomats, but others, you know, for example, who you know, I could name who were just extraordinary and extraordinarily good at their the job, extraordinary human beings, but extraordinarily good at the job. But there were others who were, you know, really just appointed there, you know, as extensions of the president, and you know, had no, again, conception or even interest in, in wanting to know about what their real jobs, uh, you know, ought to be and how the system actually worked. They were kind of outside of it, and that was always a major problem. That's why I said that the system isn't very good in, you know, kind of having those checks and balances in place before you get we should never have gone to impeachment. I mean, the system failed. And then, of course, you know, the whole impeachment hearings, I mean, we have two of them now, you know, where, I mean, I think, you know, obviously we've kind of run on over time, your book, you know, touches on January sixth, but, you know, you've, you had to, you know, finish it off and that's all still unfolding. You know, we don't really know where we're we going to end up at all of this in terms of accountability and responsibility for some of the things that happened. And Trump certainly was emboldened by really the lack of any kind of censure, C-E-N-S-U-R-E, at the end of the first impeachment trial. And there was also a direct line from that to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia because Putin and people in the Kremlin took away from this and nobody cared about Ukraine. It was just a political circus. It was all about u s domestic politics, everything was a joke, and we weren't really serious about national security or about Ukraine. This was just a game. so that's you know certainly how it uh, came about, and we should have been you know figuring out ways in which we were much more attentive to the national security aspects of this. I didn't feel that national security was really on the agenda during that first impeachment trial. It was much more about this political jostling between Democrats and Republicans rather than having our national security uh, in uh, uh, the forefront of people's minds, and which is why I and all of my colleagues were there to, to bear witness.
0: You've touched upon what I wanted to be the last question, which is it was all kind of shocking and destabilizing when the impeachment process happened. But, of course, it looks very different in light of what subsequently happened in Ukraine. And we, you know, we now, this war is still ongoing, Um, but there were messages sent that obviously Putin internalized. And I I just wonder if, as you look at it in retrospect, do you think how these issues were handled somehow led to where we are now? And did they, in fact, increase the likelihood of conflict?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, it's as simple as that. I also think it's the same way in which Russia was handled. It became a domestic political football. You know, it also starts with, you know, Democrats basically saying that Putin elected Trump, which emboldened Putin. I mean, what an amazing thing. Well, I elected an American president. Americans didn't. I did this. We just recently had Mr. Prigozhin, who spearheaded some of the influence operations through the Internet Research Agency back in 2016, saying, yep, yep, we did it. We interfered and we're doing it again and keep on doing it again. We undermined faith in our own election system. But then we also kind of pulled what should be a standalone national security issue into the political fray domestically. So Trump was also always obsessed about denying Russian interference and all of the Russian operations because he wanted it to be made clear that, as he said, I ran a brilliant campaign. I was elected by an overwhelming majority. He was obsessed with disproving the fact that he'd only won by a sliver. of a a margin of votes in the electoral college and hadn't won at all in the popular vote on a nationwide vote count. That bothered the heck out of him. And so he was always wanting to push away this whole idea that he was illegitimate and that somebody else might have tipped the scales. All the reports that said that the Russians interfered to boost him at the expense of Hillary Clinton, then he's starting to say, no, Ukraine interfered. That was a kind of fertile ground for Ukraine interfered in support of Hillary Clinton. And we got into this kind of back and forth in our own domestic politics, where Ukraine and Russia both become part of a, a political game. I mean, that was just deeply damaging. And that, again, leads to you know, where we are now, where Putin still thinks he can manipulate the United States to get what he wants in Ukraine. And you know, we know that all along, because of 2014 and the annexation of uh, Crimea, that Putin's had his eyes on further territorial acquisitions in Ukraine and putting Ukraine under siege. I mean this is, this has already been going on by the time we got to the impeachment for years Pressure on Ukraine starts to mount after 2011 2012 when Putin comes back into the presidency and many of us had been watching it and that we'd always you know knew that there was Russian interference operations it's just we didn't realize that we would be so vulnerable to the effects of this you know one of the other areas of our vulnerability you know now that we're talking about this against the backdrop of the midterms and you know, I was you know when I was voting astounded about the number of Of things I have to vote on on the ballot. And the United States has more elected positions than any other country. Positions are in other places. This is why we keep talking about resistance and deep state bureaucrats. We elect so many officials that other countries don't, that they appoint them and they have much more faith in their institutions. And who is really electing a lot of these officials? Well, it's just a very small sliver. I mean, I left some of the bad things blank on my ballot. I had no idea that this was on the ballot. I'd been following the major. And I'm, you know, why am I electing, you know, the the head of the orphan board in another county when I live over here, for example? I don't know who all these, you know, various circuit uh, judges are, and I've tried to read up, and I'm a pretty educated voter. You know, I'm going there, I'd miss these ones completely. So who's actually voting for them? 5% of the electorate? 10% of the electorate? This is not democratic. You know, you see that in the United Kingdom right now, you know, where I hailed from originally, of succession, a rapid succession of prime ministers essentially being selected by a couple of hundred thousand members of the Conservative Party are not having an electoral mandate at all, are not representing, you know, kind of a larger swathe of uh, the population. So we've got ourselves into all kinds of problems. And, you know, we then look at people who are in public service. Well, if you're not elected, what are you doing there? Well, you know, when you get on a plane, you don't elect the pilot before you get on. You kind of hope that you've actually got people who know what they're doing, have actually trained to do something where your life's in their hands. And that's, you know, kind of a, you don't elect your surgeon before you go into, You know, have your appendix taken out. And we have many positions in the government, many positions that shouldn't be elected at either state, local or at the national level, the way you actually want somebody who's competent and is actually trained. And we have to you know, figure out how we're going to deal with that. Because again, as we keep seeing our national security is at risk, and there's always mechanisms for people who haven't been appointed, selected or elected to get in on the mix and have an enormous influence.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. And of course, those are reasons that led me to write the book. And they are, of course, reasons that led me to talk to you for the book and uh, why I think it's so important that people continue to hear from you. You mentioned several times your Putin book, which is called Mr. Putin Operative in the Kremlin. I really encourage people to go back and look at that because Vladimir Putin remains uh, extremely relevant. Fiona's other book, There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, is also spectacularly good because it is told not only in her voice, but it is also an origin story of precisely the kind of public servant that the book is meant to celebrate and we should be very happy for. And by that, I mean you. So thank you, Fiona, for your service. Thank you for the books. Thank you for joining us here today. And uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you again sometime soon. In the meantime, thank you and bye-bye.